you're attuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. A federal judge sentenced Nicholas Oaks on Friday to four years in jail for his part in the January 6th insurrection on the U.S. Capitol. HPR was the first to report that Oaks had started a Hawaii chapter of the extreme right-wing group Proud Boys. Here's part of that interview. Hey, my name is Nick Oaks, and I'm the president and founder of the Hawaii chapter of the Proud Boys. We are a social club fraternity, and we are right-wing. The only thing you have to do to become a Proud Boy is declare yourself to be a proud Western chauvinist, which is pretty simple. That's not a male chauvinist, as sometimes confused. It's just to say that we think Western culture is the best, and we need make no apology for that. At the time, Oak said he supported defunding higher education. He thought rising temperatures and extreme weather were all part of the natural processes and that mass shootings are statistically irrelevant to the gun debate. You can listen to that extended interview with HPR's Noe Tanigawa that originally aired January 16th, 2018. We'll have the link on our webpage. Oaks, who unsuccessfully ran for a seat in the Hawaii State House as a Republican, originally pled not guilty to charges of conspiracy, obstruction of an official proceeding, destruction and theft of government property, entering restricted building or grounds, and aiding and abetting. He later changed that to guilty in a plea deal to one count of obstruction of an official proceeding. Joining us this morning to help put this in context is contributing editor of our bi-weekly segment of The Long View, Neil Milner. Good morning. Morning. So you've had January 6th on your mind. I had January 6th on my mind almost by mistake because I came across this really interesting article in Texas Monthly by Robert Draper, who does a lot of writing about um, the far right, and you see it in the New York Times. And the article, it turns out, has started to be trending. And it's about something called the Munn family. The Munn family essentially is the only January 6th participant that had been arrested as a, and found guilty through a plea deal in, uh, as a family. One thing to understand is how different they are from Nick Oaks and the Proud Boys, but how much they come together over time in, in many ways. So the article is kind of interesting because the family is, like all families, it has its own eccentricities. This one has a lot of them. And part of what uh, Draper is trying to show here is the difference between what you get to know about the family if you look into it sort of as a journalist, as a historian, and what the courts actually knew when they sentenced him. So a uh, complicated story short, the, the Munn family is this very kind of close, uh, always been sort of isolated family um, that for a long time lived in Sparta, Wisconsin, and then they moved down to a town called Burger. Texas, in the Texas panhandle, because they decided that was a nice place to live. The family had a kind of checkered, the, the parents had a kind of checkered history, uh, that is, that they stiffed some people and probably stole some money from their father. So, and then and then they moved. People down there didn't know anything about it. The, the, um, it's a town of 10,000. They fit in. And over time, especially the father got interested in... Um, that kind of far right, not as an intellectual, not as a smooth talker like like uh, uh, Nick Oakes is, kind of got interested in it. And, and then after the election, he becomes very much a part of Stop the Steal and begins to, to uh, do a lot of Facebook stuff, gets banned because he's spreading false information. Long story short, again, the family, as a family, decides to go to Washington, D.C., uh, for January 6th because they wanted to stop the steal. The townspeople didn't know very much about it. They didn't care. They, they knew that the folks were conservative, white folks, it was fine. So they go on what seems sort of like a school trip. That's how they were kind of describing it, uh, including a number of their eight children. Uh, some of them didn't live in Texas anymore. And one who was uh, ended up being the most vociferous who was a national honors student at a high school. So this uh, was a, a civics lesson This for the was family. a civics. That's what they said. It was a civics lesson. So they go there. And even then, if you think about what Oaks did and what the people with the Buffalo Heads did, where there was clearly breaking in and, and mayhem and, and a little bit of, of, of bad injuries and, and so on. Everybody knows that story. What the Munns ended up doing was 
um, and they find this out through surveillance thing. The FOD they see in, in all the mayhem that's going on in January 6th inside the Capitol, uh, they see a, there's a picture of the father kind of climbing through a window. And then a few minutes later, the rest of the family climbs through the window. They mill around. Uh, they don't participate. They don't talk to anybody. It's not clear what they're doing other than they're glad that they're here and they want to see the steal stopped. And then it ends and they send out stuff about how it was and there really wasn't violence and we were maintaining our First Amendment rights. A few months pass um, and they get arrested because for a lot of things. One is that someone dropped a dime on them. I mean, how hard is it if you're on Facebook and you got your pictures all over and someone says, hey, this is some social media stuff, probably right. a relative. Then the whole kind of thing starts in a different way again. Then it's, it's part two. And so they uh, are in this town, and then what are they, just hailed as, what, heroes because they participated? They weren't exactly hailed as heroes because they weren't interactive enough with the town to be heroes. It isn't like they came in and, and participated. This is a little town, pretty mm-hmm. isolated. And what the people thought, it seems to be that uh, the, the attitude was, well, they're conservative, and that's good, and they participate in the church. Again, it, it maybe not that actively, you can't tell. But... There was enough kind of, uh, enough sort of stop the steal, passive stop the steal. People thought that Trump should have won. They didn't, they thought the government was overreacting. That was sort of the idea there. When they get charged, um, then the town, that's part of, by the way, part of the problem with the Draper article. There's a whole lot of other stuff you'd like to know more about. Um, And and one of it is the interaction with the town. Anyway, they get charged. and they um, to go to and in order for them to go to Washington, the, the last time they went to Washington for stop the steal, it really looked like a cat. They took their old van and piled everybody in, and who knows where they stayed. So this time, they start essentially. A, a, it wasn't GoFundMe, but it's like a GoFundMe similar. thing, mm-hmm. saying this is it. We're martyred. All all these kinds of things. The government is screwing us over. Stop the steal. Give us money. Give us Help money. Us yeah, which is what they've been done. I mean, they're pretty slick and a little shady as far as money's concerned. They raise thirty-two thousand dollars. They go back to um, D.C. for their uh, for the the court thing in uh, a brand new white van. 15-passenger van, because they take a lot of other people with them, with uh, relatives pretending they're um, security guards driving a truck, and, and some of the uh, Proud Boys-type people and and there to support him. They're now becoming part of the thing, and they end up staying in a very posh hotel near the—okay. So then the, then what happens, and this is really the, the interesting thing— what Draper says, here's the problem, that, that courts were overwhelmed because there's so many people they're charged. So the court does what courts do when they're overwhelmed. They, they, uh, they give misdemeanors to people with less serious offenses. Mm-hmm. So the court does two things. It gives them, they plead guilty, even though they said they weren't going to plead guilty. Um, and they make their speeches. And the court, the judge doesn't know what to make of them because the judge has this view, the two things. The judge has the view that no rational people would do this, especially the kid who's a national honor, you know, an honor student. But the other thing is the courts, because they were so pressed and didn't have this kind of information, had no idea about the history. They had no idea that uh, uh, the, the ones had essentially raised this money under somewhat false pretenses. They didn't know the other history. Where if you're in a sentencing procedure, mm-hmm. that's likely to mitigate the sentence in some way. Make right. It, make it so bigger. the court let them off easy? Court let them off easy. And where they stand right now is that uh, they're, they, they don't have to spend any hard time. The town kind of supports them, and it's pretty clear that, that they're going to continue to think that same way again. Not big players, in some ways, exceptional because they're, they're kind of different, but it's a reminder of how difficult it is to handle these cases and the different kinds of effects that they have. So had uh, the prosecutors in the court been aware of some of these other extraneous things that they were doing, they, the outcome might have been different? I think the outcome might have been different. They might not have been, they might have taken them more seriously as they did with, uh, with, Oaks. with Oaks. Raise them up as a player, I think. All right, yeah, all interesting uh, to weigh as we come up on yet another anniversary. Yes, another anniversary, yes. But thanks so much. You're welcome. Take care.
We've been talking with our contributing editor, Neil Milner, for our bi-weekly segment that we call The Long View. Look for links to the articles he mentioned on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for HPR comes from Parents and Children Together, supporting positive mental health with its behavioral health support programs on Oahu, Maui, Molokai, and Kauai. PACTHawaii.org. Today on The Daily, Kate Zernike explains how the end of Roe v. Wade at first appeared to be an unvarnished victory for anti-abortion advocates, but that the reality of post-Roe America turned out differently. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the immersive exhibition, Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, Exploring the Human Connection to Nature. Now on view, details at honolulumuseum.org. It's been two months since the city contractor flagged a sinkhole in Kaka'ako that isn't going to be a quick fix. But you may not know that had that hole been a block or two over, it could have affected the rail project. Honolulu Authority for Rapid Transportation CEO Lori Kaikina says it was a close call, but because the decision had already been made to temporarily end the rail route at the Civic Center, the project was spared delays linked to that particular problem. At the time of the discovery, the city's Departments of Design and Construction, as well as Transportation, Environmental Services, and the Honolulu Board of Water Supply were alerted because the intersection was not safe. Kaikina happened to be down in the Cook Street area out in the field when that sinkhole was first discovered back in October. Our contractor who's working down there on Halekowila and Cook was potholing and right there is where we were going to terminate anyway, at least the utility relocation and the equipment just went all the way through. So we knew there had to have been a huge void. So they opened up a small opening so that we could see underneath. I happened to be out in the field that day, and there was only about four inches of asphalt holding up that road, and it was quite disconcerting. I'm standing in the middle of this this road intersection, and big trucks are are coming by us and yeah, it was quite concerning so I immediately called the city departments, DTS, ENV, Board of Water Supply, um, DFM, just we got an issue out here. <laughs> we need to shut down this intersection. It is not safe for the, the traveling public, the vehicular. Um, so immediately DTS came out, shut down, and DDC came out to do an assessment and there's, they um, have done a preliminary assessment, and I think it's the box drain that at the joints is leaking, and so it has undermined the material in that intersection. So they're going to do an emergency repair out there, but this has nothing to do with heart. We just found it, and then I asked when they did the press release, please don't have our name in there. Right, because <laughs> I don't want people to think it was our fault. Well, okay, we but, but I mean, the route, the route though, because initially we were supposed to go all the way to Alamoana. Would Hart have gone down that road? Yes, but because we're doing the interim terminus, it's not going to affect us for now. Wow, so you must have been breathing a sigh of relief, like there's a good reason why we didn't. (laughs) Exactly. Oh, my gosh. I was thinking, okay, ENV, so we dye tested it. Mm -hmm. Some of the dye came out into ENV, so some of the flow is coming, is, is going into the pipe, the sewer pipe, but it's not the sewer that's the problem. It's the storm drain. And at first I called Ernie thinking, hey, Ernie, is, um, is your, do you have any leaks in your water Oh, the Board of Water and Supply? Immediately they, Board of Water Supply, yeah, gotcha. sorry. Yep, immediately they came out, did the testing. They said, nope, it's not us. And that's when DDC sent divers in and 
they they determined that it was a storm drain. We have to fix that. Okay, yeah. so so in the context of had we gone to Ala Moana straight away, that could have been a problem. That could have been a, an issue for us, yes. But because we are stopping at the Civic Center, this is not yeah. really going to be an immediate issue for us. Correct, correct. But what about the yes, long term? DDC will find, will will implement the solution way before we need to come in and, and do our utility relocation. I'm just kind of thinking, though, long term. You know, What does that mean for heart? Yeah, if it was just a matter of a small leak and... We would have we would have fixed it. We would Hart would have come in and repaired the pipe. Let's say it was E and V's pipe um, leaking. We would have repaired it, and then E and V could reimburse us because we're mobilized already. We're out there. But when I saw how big it was, like this is way beyond us just helping. And DDC has to, to your point, they have to chase it all the way upstream. They can't just backfill the puka and asphalt it over because you haven't gotten to the root cause of the problem. So. I believe they know what the root cause is, and they're going to fix that before they repair the um, backfill the um, the cavern and repair the road. So that should all be fixed before we come in. What's to say that there isn't something else leaking along the route where we've already built the guideway? That's what construction is. I mean, even when we're on Dillingham further upstream, we're going to encounter issues, and we just have to deal with it head on. When we when we open the trench and there it is, and so I've been very very open about that, and that's why every Friday or right now it's every other Friday we're going to make it every Friday we have a utility task force and that includes all the city departments, all the third party utilities. Hey, we encountered this yesterday. We need a solution now to fix it. So no, we we anticipate. All along the route, we're going to uncover unforeseen issues, but we just have to fix it as we come along. If something like this was just one block, maybe two blocks ever, it would have had a major impact on us as far as schedule, because I would need DDC to fix that before we can come in and do our work. But so blessed that it was right at the edge of our scope of work. Is there any way to detect this problem without opening it up, you know, with the trenching and all? That's a good question. For this one, I don't know how DFM could have detected that. They have a similar O&M program as E&V does on the sewer lines. But, you know, for the sewer lines, you can get CCTV cameras in there, right? Because the only thing that's supposed to go in the sewer lines is number one, number two, and toilet paper. Storm drains. Unfortunately, because it's so open, you've got open culverts, um, things that go from the storm drain, you know, on the roads, the open storm drains, anything, any litter that comes down, the rain just washes it in there. So it's very difficult to get cameras in there for DFM to do normal, um, normal probing is not really the right word, but analysis. Analysis, okay. yeah, I don't know if they could have easily detected this. And it's not like they can also, like at least Board of Water, when it's under pressure, they can determine that, hey, there's a possible leak because the pressure has dropped. Storm drain is 100% gravity. So they, won't, they wouldn't be able to, I don't think, a good way to detect this. We've become very concerned about climate change and rising sea levels. Oh, I mean, fair, is there anything enough, that yeah. you're looking at with that? I mean, how how do we know that the you know rising sea levels aren't going to impact the guideways that we've already got built? My understanding with the guideway that has been taken into account in the design and the construction. You know, let's say the lift right of the structure underneath with sea level rise, and we are of course going to be above the sea level rise. So I was just having uh, a meeting with one of our board members, and he's very, very in tuned with climate change and sea level rise. And he says, I would want our train to be the one thing that is continuing to move during sea level rise. I said, I, I understand, you know, maybe we could be help with the moving of people and equipment and resources, but we are powered by HECO. So if HECO goes down, we're stuck too. So that's why he wants us to take a look at other alternatives of powering the train, whether it's, you know, P 
HPV or something else. And so how far along are we on that? Not very far, just initial initial talks. And then anything else you can share with us about the uh, schedule at this point in time? We're going concurrently with the trial running and the hammerheads. So the trial running, we have 144 scenarios that we need to get through. We're about 70% complete, but the remaining 30%, we're still having communication issues. So the software, Hitachi, they need to work on the software because before we went into trial running, they could do individual communications to trains and stations. But now when we're trying to send it to batch, multiple trains, multiple stations, they're having difficulties with that. So they're, they brought in specialists for the software, I, I want to say last week, to try and take a look through it and get through the issues. So once they fix the software, then we can do the remaining 30%. Then we go into what we call system availability, and that's where that 30-day running average kicks in. They have to be up 98.5% of the time for a 30-day running average. So we haven't even gotten to that yet. So we're looking at the first quarter still for the trial running to be complete, and we can hand it over to DTS. However, the hammerheads, right, that, that threw a kink in everything. And so there's, I believe, 21 columns that need to be uh, epoxy coated all of the cracks need to be epoxy coated so we're starting that process this week we're shipping in equipment from maui and personnel for the experts that do this so we're going to start out on the west side to do just one and have all the stakeholders take a look make sure everything is good and then continue on down but that's just the epoxy. There are eight columns, I believe, that need to be post-post-tensioned. So there needs to be more rebar installed on eight of those columns. And so the designs are being finalized with our engineer of record and then our stakeholders, H.DTS, FTA, need to chime in to make sure that everyone is in concurrence. So the schedule for that is still... We're hoping to concurrent with the trial running and getting the post-post-tension retrofit done the first quarter of next year. But if it doesn't, it gets pushed back until those hammerheads and the trial running is complete. And then we can safely turn it over to DTS. That was Lori Kaikina, CEO of HART, updating us on the progress of the rail project. So while there are many aspects of the testing that could delay that transfer, luckily the sinkhole and that storm drain leak discovered in Kaka'ako in October is not one of them. The city says crews have started working on sealing the problematic culvert, but additional work is expected to begin next week. Support for HPR comes from SEEKS, the School for Examining Essential Questions of Sustainability, a public charter middle school celebrating 10 years of serving Honolulu families. Learn more at seeqs.org. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks FA, we catch up with the brand new federal program officer for broadband in Hawaii. We'll find out about the key federal legislation that will build out last mile infrastructure and deliver digital equity programs in rural communities. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from Hakuone, committed to building a neighborhood where all are welcome and where Hawaiian culture thrives. Learn more about OHA's plans at a virtual town hall today at 6.30 p.m. Registration at hakuone.com.
Governor Josh Green has named former Honolulu City Council Chairman Ikaika Anderson to head the state's uh, Department of Hawaiian Homelands. Is he up for the challenge? HBR's Kuvehi Hirishi joins us to talk about what the beneficiaries think. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. It's our Governor uh, Josh Green, of course, coming out earlier this week with his second round of appointments for Department Director uh, Directors nominated, including uh, former Honolulu City Councilman Ikaika Anderson. Uh, folks might remember him. He spent nearly a dozen years in the City Council uh, here on Oahu, representing Waimanalo, Kailua, and Kaneohe, and more recently made that unsuccessful run for for Lieutenant Governor. Uh, this was uh, somewhat of an unexpected appointment for uh, the homestead leaders that we've spoken to. Uh, the governor's office says there were 32 applicants vying for this position, uh, including uh, previous or former DHHL employees and beneficiary advocates. But Anderson himself uh, told Civil Beat uh, that he did not apply for this position. He was actually um uh, offered it afterwards, and that's on the minds of Native Hawaiian beneficiaries as they consider, you know, uh, what is he going to do? How familiar is uh, Anderson with the Hawaiian Homeland Trust, its mission, its challenges, which have made headlines over the last uh, decade or so in terms of having this uh, 28,000 or more uh, waiting list of Native Hawaiian beneficiaries looking for homes. And uh, so, you know, overall, what we're hearing is that beneficiaries are kind of cautiously optimistic because it also is a refreshing change when you don't expect, uh, when you get the unexpected. Maybe he's bringing a fresh perspective that uh, has not been uh, there before. Uh, Kekoa Inomoto, a Hawaiian homesteader in Waiohuli in Kula, upcountry Maui, uh, says she doesn't know much about Anderson's familiarity with the trust. Uh, She does know, of course, uh, the Anderson family name here on Oahu, uh, his uh, grandfather Whitney Anderson of course a former legislator and um, he she's she's closely watching media statements and reports as they come out to learn more about him so I'm excited I was uh, happy to read his statements that he will be accessible to the beneficiaries that his priority is providing homesteads and homes for our uh, Native Hawaiian homesteaders uh, 28,000 of whom are on the wait list and languishing on the wait list. These are people who have been on the wait list for decades. They are 50% blood quantum Native Hawaiians. And I am happy that he's going to be addressing this, which is the mission of this century-old Hawaiian Homes Commission Act Federal Trust. And so I welcome Ikaika and his intentions. And the, the big priority, of course, this uh, coming year for the department is that one-time $600 million uh, appropriation from the legislature to really help bolster its efforts to address this wait list. And all eyes are on, are on what Anderson plans to do. Will he support the plan put forth by the previous DHHL administration? This is already, of course, out there, a plan to use this money to produce about 2,700 uh, homestead lots statewide. There's also another beneficiary-driven, I should say, plan that was uh, drafted by the Sovereign Council for Hawaiian Homestead Associations, and that calls for more of an investment of this money in a other lands so that they can in, in <clears throat> use CIP funds to go ahead and build those lands instead of dipping into the 600 million and Anderson has said that he will entertain both there is a possibility that he can scrap the entire thing he can come up with his own ideas where he stands is really uh, what folks are are waiting for and that's preventing uh, individuals like Patrick Kavaiola a 78 year old homestead leader in Kyokaha who's actually over the course of his lifetime we counted 20 uh, department directors have come and gone over that 78 years and for him it's a big um, sort of priority that the new and incoming administration really listen and bring in the ideas of beneficiaries. Here's Kahavaiola. Personally, you know, hey, one Hawaiian, okay, represented Waimanalo and Kaneohe uh, while he was on the city council there in Honolulu. So he, he, at least he gets an idea of uh, a Hawaiian constituency, you know. Yeah. In fact, I think maybe after the first meet and greet and he gives his position as how he can help Hawaiians, I know everybody want to build homes, but uh, build, build is how. I think those are the devils that, for me, is the details. Kahavaiola also mentioned, and <clears throat> it kind of uh, uh, didn't 
come up in our reporting, but Katie Lambert, uh, deputy uh, uh, nominated by Green for the Department of Hawaiian Homelands, uh, was uh, one of the attorneys in the Kalima lawsuit case uh, settlement um, and on the other side of the beneficiary table. So having uh, seeing her name uh, pop up in these nominations really caught the eye of a lot of beneficiary advocates who have been waiting for the Kalima uh, lawsuit to be settled, but also uh, sort of questioning uh, the intention behind that appointment. And you did try and reach out to Ikaik Anderson? We did. We did. Uh, we, he did not get back to us for this piece, but uh, hopefully we'll have him on the conversation soon to figure <laughs> out uh, what he needs to do uh, to really gain the trust of, of beneficiaries out there uh, awaiting, of course, Senate confirmation this coming session. Right, right. Yeah. Well, lots of eyes will be watching. But thank you so much, Kuvehi. Thanks. We've been talking to HPR reporter Kuvehi Hirishi. Uh, check out her story on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. It's around this time of the year that ahi may be on your mind, but will that fishery be around for the long haul? That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Marcel Henri on the line today. Good morning, Marcel. Morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes. So uh, tell us about the story that you wrote. I mean, um, you hate to think that the tuna isn't going to be around in our waters for very long. Yeah, this is an issue that caught our attention, and it's a bit forward-looking in terms of the ongoing effects of climate change that we've already started to see in the region. And it's basically what scientists and researchers say will be something of a, a great displacement of the tuna stocks that inhabit the waters, the, the territorial waters in largely the, the western and central Pacific, where a lot of these large fleets, these industrial fishing fleets, the pursainers will go and and fish for a lot of the tuna that does ultimately wind up on our tables. And what they're finding is that basically the prevailing climate patterns are going to start uh, shifting these tuna stocks farther and farther east into the Pacific and out of these traditional fishing grounds. And now that's going to be a big problem for the Pacific region and for a lot of these countries that are heavily dependent on the, the access fees that a lot of these foreign fleets pay to fish in those waters. I mean, their economies are so dependent on this. So this is something that people see that is coming down the pike and deserves a lot more study and a lot more focus. And that's really what that the, today's story looks into is is the, the problem and what people are doing about it. So it's not just fish fish on the table, but really money that these little tiny island nations depend on to keep operating. Exactly. It, it's a situation in terms of uh, both economic upheaval. You know, this, this money goes into building the roads and the hospitals and the schools in these smaller nations that frankly have not done very much when you talk about the emissions that are driving climate change. These are some of the smaller actors, the smallest actors, really, in the effects that are driving climate change. And yet they are bearing a lot of the brunt of the effects that we're already seeing and will be in the decades ahead in terms of the tuna. The other way that this affects them, too, is in terms of food security. A lot of issues are going into degrading their coral reef nearshore ecosystems and climate change is one of them so it's really it's the economics and the food security uh, in the pacific region that's really at stake so what island groups are we talking about exactly we're talking about um basically the this study that i looked at focuses on 10 of the most tuna dependent nations these are nations such as the solomon islands uh, the Marshall Islands, Kiribati, um, I'm trying to think of others around there, but it's in that, you know, the, the Western and Central Pacific region. And so 14 of the countries, including those 10 uh, more heavily dependent on tuna, are the ones that are really coming together 
to form this this working group and to put together kind of a, a regional tuna program that can address the, this this problem and how they're going to uh, to do, to deal with it really. So you kind of hope that the the tuna you know, we'll get used to the idea of warm waters and stick around <laughs> in that part of the Pacific. But yeah, if it gets too warm, you know, they may just go elsewhere. I mean, I, I think I saw in the headlines this week uh, about the whales that we normally see in our waters. You know, will they stick around as the temperatures get warmer? Yeah. I, I mean, this is all about the the climate effects, the the prevailing weather patterns like El Nino and La Nina and all of these these different, you know, effects that go even people study you know decades long these these wave type patterns right these these uh, temperature patterns and how they affect uh whales for sure and also these these species that we rely on to uh to consume right and so part of the the research and the, the thinking that's going into this is you know, do you do you compensate these these countries uh, monetarily in so-called loss and damage, or do you also try and limit the effects of climate change to limit this phenomenon, this this great displacement uh, that's coming? Yeah, and you know, you figure well, if it affects them, it's going to eventually affect us. So, uh, yeah, it would be uh, behoove us to study. You know, what are the options? Sure, sure, and that's that. The they're in the early stages of of this. It, it, there's a a whole thing that's going through the UN that they've just started uh, to really uh, try and, and study this more carefully, so that these countries are in a better position to negotiate what what they're owed in terms of, of loss and damage from things that they're largely not responsible for. Yeah, interesting issue. But thank you so much, Marcel. Thanks so much, Catherine. We've been talking to Marcel Henry uh, for today's reality check. You can read his story on online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Air Cargo, offering five direct flights weekly from Honolulu to Seattle-Tacoma Airport. More information at alohaaircargo.com. Next time on The World, The Secrets of Whales. Reach! Straight ahead! A biologist is learning how one group of whales communicates and survives in the Caribbean. What he finds out could be critical to preserving biodiversity. It connects to this part of the ocean, and they succeed here because their way of life is evolved for here. What whales teach each other and what they can teach us on the world. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the new Hawaii Island Community Health Center, committed to providing Hawaii Island's ohana with comprehensive health care, island-wide. HICommunityHealthCenter.org. tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio and now it's time to hear some birds. We've got the song of a little shorebird for you thanks to the Makale Library of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart tells us how the wandering tattler got its name. Here's your Manu Minute. The ulili or wandering tattler is a sandpiper that is indigenous to Hawaii meaning that they're naturally found here as well as other parts of the world. They're about 10 inches tall, mostly gray, with long yellow legs and a white stripe in front of their eye. Like other sandpipers, they use their long bill to probe in sand and rocky crevices for worms, crustaceans, and mollusks. And they can often be identified from a distance by the way they bob their tail up and down while they hunt for food. You can often find ulili foraging alone along shorelines and streams in Hawaii from late summer through spring, 
but by May, most of them begin their long migration across the Pacific to Alaska, where they breed along mountain streams. They're a bit unusual for sandpipers in that their babies are good swimmers. Like many Hawaiian birds, the name ulili sounds like their call. In Hawaiian culture, the ulili is one of the sacred messengers and scouts of the gods. Their English name, Wandering Tattler, refers to their alarm calls to warn other birds when hunters or predators are nearby. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, exploring Hawaii Island with visitors and kama'aina since 1993. More information at hawaii-forest.com. The window for Oscar voting ends tomorrow, and one short film being considered for an Academy Award is Hawaiian Soul. The film depicts key moments in the life of Native Hawaiian activist and musician George Helm, who helped lead the effort to stop the bombing of Kaholawe in the 1970s. During that time, Helm and fellow activist Kimo Mitchell disappeared while crossing the channel between Kaholawe and Maui. Their bodies were never found. The film was written and directed by Native Hawaiian filmmaker uh, Aina Paikai. Paikai grew up in Pearl City, attended the University of Hawaii's uh, Academy for Creative Media. In the conversations, Russell Subiano talked to Paikai this morning about being in the Oscar race and George Helms' legacy. I know the song is important to you. Every song should be important to you. Every song has a soul. You need to tap into that spirit, the life of the land expressed in song. And that's the Hawaiian soul. There are probably thousands of short films made every year. How does a short film become eligible for Oscar consideration? And then how do you catch the attention of Academy voters? So the way that you get qualified for an Oscar One of two ways is that you can win a particular festival that is accredited for qualifying in the Oscars for a particular category. So for us, it was Imaginative Film Festival in Toronto. We won the Best Live Action Short category and therefore able to qualify for the Oscars. Another way is that you can show the film in a theater for at least a day, and that also allows you to qualify. And so, yeah, we're up against a lot of films. I don't have an actual number as to how many, but could be over a thousand. And now we need to get it in front of Academy voters, so mostly Hollywood types, people that are in the industry, celebrities to folks in the behind the scenes. And the best way that you can do that is by running a marketing campaign and getting yourself and your, your film in front of as many eyeballs as possible, usually through PR firms. I was able to watch the film last night, and one of the themes that caught my attention was how no one seemed to be listening. No one was listening to George sing in the bar. The church congregation wasn't listening to the young people trying to speak about the harm being done to Ko'olawe. But George recalled something that he had been taught as a young musician and used that. Holomoa, George. Holomoa. Move on with it. For goodness sakes, open your mouth. If you're going to sing, He used the singing to capture the attention of the kupuna in the church. Can you talk about how George's voice, both his speaking and his singing voice, were able to get people of the day to listen? Yeah, I think George had a certain charisma that he trained via his art of music. And so he was able to kind of hone his skills as a young person and really dedicated himself because he loved Hawaiian music that much. And through that, I feel like found his love for Hawaii. And so when it came to this issue and he got to that age where he felt like it was time to speak up on issues that a lot of people weren't talking about, he did it the best way he knew how, which was through music. And everyone that I've talked to in that generation really remembers that kind of magnetism that he had via his voice. You know, he would really engage the audience first with, you know, kind of the softness and the talent of his music and then be able to really articulate the feelings that we had as a people 
in that time with native rights and Koho Olave. And so he's just one of those people that really had it. And a lot of people, especially our generation and younger, don't really know who he is. And so this was a chance to use my art form film to really honor him and hopefully educate and allow people to re-engage or introduce them to his message of Aloha Aina and his love for Hawaiian music. Another thing that I kind of picked up on is how the kupuna in the church had this authority and this wisdom, and the young people that came to talk to them about Ko'olave, they were like hungry for the information and the, and the wisdom that they had, and there seemed to be like this disconnect that maybe was around in the, in the 70s, maybe in the 60s, 70s where the kupuna had the information and the young people wanted it, but it wasn't actively being transferred to the next generation, or so it seemed. And in fact, one of the characters, one of the young characters in your film says, we Hawaiians. And we're very proud to be Hawaiian, but nobody teaching us how to be Hawaiian. Can you talk about why young people in the mid seventies might've felt that way? I think through the process of researching this film and trying to understand better both those generations, the older generation represented in the church as well as the young people, George folks, was for me eye-opening in that there was kind of the pain and hurt that existed from you know colonization and where we were as a people in terms of trying to assimilate into a new culture and a new way of being and also being really protective of what we still had left. And so for the older generation, it seemed like they were being guarded and not really wanting to let out all the information, their language, all of those things that could be, I don't know, abused. And yeah, so for the disconnect of the younger generation where they're growing up with names like George and Walter and Emmett, that they never had any kind of Hawaiian connection other than its kind of mysterious existence with the elders. And so it seemed like, yeah, that turning point of civil rights and native rights in the 60s and 70s really sparked a fire and it's like hey we have a history we have oppression or wrongdoings things that a lot of people have faced and now how do we get that back where do we go to find that knowledge how do we be ourselves again and so it was really just a fiery passionate time and really thankful to those folks especially george that showed us how and now we can exist and be proud to be hawaiian have long hawaiian names like myself and you know like and for what we believe in and now kind of know the past because of George and those folks. Yeah, it was interesting to see it depicted, kind of that turning point depicted in your film. And going back to your film being in consideration for an Oscar nomination and and you're trying to get the attention of some who may not be paying attention to what has happened in Hawaii and what is happening in our islands, what do you hope non-Hawaiians will take away after watching your film? You know, we really were intentional with who we were making this film for, and it was the people of Hawaii. Because nowhere else in the world are going to be more impacted by George's story than those of us that are carrying on his legacy, Hawaiian and non-Hawaiian. And I think what I hope for, especially for that non-Hawaiian audience, is that they get a sense of what Aloha Aina might mean to them. And it's categorized in so many different ways. A lot of us it as you know restoration of land but really like through the passion of music and his art for myself and filmmaking all of the ways that we can give back to our place wherever we are and understand that land is the thing that feeds us that nourishes us that is you know bigger than us and so that's really what i want to hope to cultivate in every person and that's what george's message was as well was that you know creating more aloha aina minded people around the world and speaking of Georgia's legacy, many Hawaiians mourn the recent passing of Dr. Emmett Aluli, who had a prominent role aside George Helm and, and Kimo Mitchell and, and others in the efforts to stop the bombing of Kaho'olawe and educate a generation of Kanaka Oivi. What do you think ultimately is their, their legacy? Just when it comes to George and that generation, Uncle Emmett, now we're starting to see a lot of them pass on and so all of the stories are becoming less and less of access and so part of the film was to inspire us those that weren't alive during that time to talk to those folks that were alive at that time and you know just hear what it was like so from you have a first primary resource of 
what it meant to them at that turning point, that change, the huli. I think when it comes to George and Dr. Emmett specifically, that what they did was save the island. And through George's sacrifice came the attention, and then through Dr. Emmett's work came the sustenance of actually going to the island, cleaning it up, doing ceremony, and giving back the island its mana and the reason for it you know, being, and not to be just something to be bombed and exploded on. And at the very least, it's that for us. Like That island is still exists. Those ceremonies are still happening, and a lot of us don't even know that we can go. It feels like you know, it's still forbidden. But I think without us, Kanaka Hawaiians people, going to the island and continuing to give it back its health, that that was the vision and the dream that they wanted just for this one island, this one specific movement that allows us to be Hawaiian again. And that can be replicated all throughout all the islands, all the different places that we're still like trying to hold on to those like gems, I guess, pieces of information and tangible land that can, you know, make us proud and allow us to be who we're supposed to be, I guess. Still putting all the pieces of the puzzle together to figure out what that means. And yeah, so I think the thing that we're still able to do is protect Koholawa and on top of that, expand that. And it definitely set the stage to be able to take more action. When we look at the protectors up on Mauna Kea, when you when we think about yeah. the action that Hawaiians took to stop development at Hunananiho and, and some other places, it definitely feels like their legacy lives on through those actions. Well, thank you so much for your time, Ina. Really appreciate talking to you. Thank you, Russell. That was Native Hawaiian filmmaker Ina Paikai talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. You can watch Paikai's film about George Helm entitled Hawaiian Soul for free on the film's website until Thursday, December 15th, when the window for Oscar voting closes. We'll have a link on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. We have to go now, but up tomorrow, we'll have the latest on the search for the next Big Island police chief. The public got to weigh in on the short list of candidates this week. Got a story you'd like to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. If you want to listen back to something, uh, find our archive shows online or by searching for The Conversation Podcast on Spotify and Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Thank you.